Hey friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing on in our series in the book of Deuteronomy, and here the guys will be in chapter 21, looking at the strange rite with the heifer and the atonement for unsolved murders. As of this podcast, we are officially launching our year-end fundraising campaign, and we are asking you, our podcast listeners, to help support our work. We're looking to add about 40 new Theopolis partners before the end of 2023, and to become a partner, you can click the link down there in the show notes, or head to our website, theopolisinstitute.com, and click on Give. To become a partner, you need to donate at least $500 in a one-time gift per year, or sign up to give $50 per month. As a partner, you're going to receive a newsletter from Peter Lightheart every Friday, which has weekly biblical reflections, theological discussions, analysis of culture and current events, and even things like reviews of recent novels, theological books, and books of poetry. So we are inviting you to become a partner today. Help us to continue to provide the scaffolding needed to refurbish the city of God. For more information on how to give, there are links down there in the show notes. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeff Myers discussing the beginning of Deuteronomy 21. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes is our uh, manager and recorder and editor, and uh, he's uh, listening in, and he'll be smoothing everything out so it's uh, easy for you to listen to and it makes more sense than it otherwise would we are recording in uh, the week after thanksgiving so those of you who celebrated the american thanksgiving in the past few days we wish you a happy thanksgiving Uh, we're moving toward advent Uh, this coming sunday is the first sunday of the advent season and so uh, we wish you a uh, a merry and a blessed advent uh, and we pray that uh, your your month prior to Christmas would be filled with joy, reflection, uh, and uh, anticipation as we acknowledge the coming of the Lord in the flesh, and as we think about the various ways that he comes both in time and will come again at the last day uh, to judge. We are in the middle of a series of studies in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, We are 20 chapters into the book. The book is 34 chapters, so we're past the halfway point, but we've basically been devoting two episodes to every chapter over the past uh, several months, and uh, that's been very rewarding. We were just saying before we started recording that uh, there's a lot that we we aren't getting. We don't feel like we're getting. There's nothing, there's no uh, answer book that we've found that uh, gives us a, a complete picture of what's going on in Deuteronomy. Uh, we don't have a, a go-to commentary that gives us everything we're looking for, but I, I found it very rewarding to plunge into these things and try to figure them out and to discuss it with the crew here. So I hope you're blessed by it as we continue this study. We're in chapter 21 today, and we're probably going to get maybe halfway through chapter 21 in this episode. We'll pick up the rest of it in the following episode. Chapter 21 continues the sixth word section of Deuteronomy. The sixth word section is the section that is applying and teasing out in various ways the significance of God's command, thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not kill. Uh, And uh, we've seen Various uh, applications of that command, uh, interesting applications, not the applications that we might immediately think of. If we're thinking systematically of how to apply the command, thou shalt not murder, we'd want to make very specific distinctions about 
what's the difference between murder and other kinds of killing. We'd want to start with that kind of thing. Deuteronomy doesn't do that. Deuteronomy does make distinctions of the sort that we're looking for, some of them, uh, but it's dealing with other sorts of things. So chapter 19, which begins this section, uh, is uh, concerned with cities of refuge, a place where manslayer goes in order to uh, escape from the, the avenger blood and finds new life in the city of refuge uh, after killing somebody and sp- spilling blood on the land. If he didn't do it deliberately, then he has an opportunity to be saved from the avenger. Chapter 20 is about warfare. That's an obvious thing to cover uh, under the heading, the the uh, command thou shalt not kill. Chapter 21 is a, an odd collection of uh, unusual uh, laws. And uh, one of the things that's a, a challenge is to see how these laws fit under the heading of the sixth word. Some of them do more than more obviously than others. The first couple fit. Uh, the first section of Deuteronomy 21 uh, has to do with unsolved murder. There's a, a dead body in the land, uh, and the elders of the nearest city have to perform a ritual in order to deal with that. Uh, that's dealing with murder and uh, investigation of murder and how you how you uh, deal with the blood blood guilt that's on the land. That makes sense as a sixth word uh, as a sixth word application. The next section has to do with uh, a war bride. You see a beautiful woman who's a cat and and take her as a captive. It tells uh, Israelites men what they have to do in order to bring her into Israel, in order to make her a wife. That seems to verge into seventh seventh commandment territory about sexual concerns, but uh, it, the setting is a war bride, and so it's still within the within that uh, within that concern. The next couple are more challenging. Uh, there's a rule about firstborn and particularly about if you're a bigamist, you have two wives. The firstborn is of a wife that you don't favor. Uh, you can't you can't change the firstborn. That's the rule that's given there. Uh, there's a rule about uh, rebellious sons and rebellious sons that are to be executed. Uh, there's an execution, but there are executions in other sections of Deuteronomy, so that doesn't make it a particularly sixth word section. So uh, how does that fit into the sixth word? That's a that's a something of a puzzle. And then the chapter ends with uh, the command that they should not allow a, a dead body to hang on a tree overnight. So th- there is an order to these. Uh, at least there's a, an ecclusio around chapter 21. Not all of the chapter divisions are obvious in uh, in Deuteronomy. Not all of the chapter divisions match the actual structure of the text. But I think this one sort of does because it begins with a body that's in the on the ground and defiling the land that needs to be dealt with. It ends with a dead body in a lodging in a tree, and it has to be taken down uh, before nightfall, lest it defile the land overnight. Both the beginning and the end also refer to the land that the Lord God, the Lord your God gives to Israel. So there's another kind of a double inclusio. And then within those, uh, there are concerns with uh, a war bride, a wife, a man who has two wives, sons of those two wives, and then the rebellious son. So there's kind of a family theme that is embedded within those two laws that have to do with defilement of the land because of dead bodies. One of the things that arises here, we'll be talking about as we go through the details, uh, then these laws, I think, give the impression of having significance beyond the specific rules that they're giving, given, giving to Israel for Israel's social life. Sometimes they're dealing with specific cases, very specific cases that, uh, would rarely bring uh, be brought up. For example, the, the the rebellious son that both his father and mother are willing to turn over to the elders, knowing that he stands in under the threat of capital punishment, 
but both both father and mother are going to give up their son to the elders of the city to be put to death. We have no record, I don't think, of this ever actually being applied uh, specifically in within Israel. And it raises the question, are we dealing with something that's not just a law for Israel, but has something some kind of more allegorical significance? And that does seem to be the case with a number of these. The, the rebellious son we've talked about before, when we had Ralph Smith on as a guest uh, many months ago at the beginning of our studies in Deuteronomy, he pointed out that the rebellious son law kind of gives a framework for understanding the whole book of Revel- a whole book of Deuteronomy. Israel is the rebellious son. Israel stands in th- under the threat of death because of Israel's rebellion, uh, and yet the Lord is merciful to Israel. And uh, or you could say Israel does die because of Israel's rebellions, but the Lord brings them back to life. So the law about the rebellious son has these allegorical overtones. And once we see that, we start thinking, well, there might be some other allegorical overtones to these other laws too. Perhaps the uh, the war bride uh, somehow is an allegory of Yahweh and Israel uh, as, as his bride. Uh, the man with two wives who has a firstborn son from the wife he does not love, from the hated wife, uh, that uh, very uh, very directly comes out of the situation of Jacob. So there's some some kind of reference back to the narrative of Jacob and his two wives. Uh, and as we go through the details, we'll be reflecting on other things of that sort, that these laws are not just social laws, not just legislation, uh, but they have theological roots, and uh, they have allegorical, quasi-allegorical overtones uh, that we want to explore, as well as how they actually applied in Israel and how they and how they reflect the justice and the mercy and truth that is the heart of the law. Quick question of clarification then. Um, are you seeing, Peter, or anyone else, like a transition into the next commandment? Or like where, where exactly are you, um, uh, are you ending this section? I think that we came to a, a, a soft consensus, at least, that it continues on into the early verses of chapter 22. 22.8 talks about building a parapet on your roof so that people don't fall off your house. You're, you're taking precautions so that blood guilt isn't brought on the house. So that that still seems to be within the zone of the sixth word. And the other things in the beginning of chapter 22 are about caring for your neighbor, caring for your neighbor's uh, animals and property, uh, which seem to come under the heading of promoting life, uh, which is the kind of reverse of the command, thou shalt not kill. So I think that we came to... We've been working with the rough consensus that it goes through 22.8 or so, but we welcome discussion if you have another suggestion. I wasn't suggesting that this chapter 21 is moving into the seventh word, um, but it's it's not easy to see exactly how some of the rules here are sixth word applications. Right, right. Uh, do any of you see any connection with uh, Genesis 4 here? I noticed that the Hebrew word for land is Adama and not Eretz uh, in 21.1. And the corpse is found out in the open country, out in the field. Of course, it's not known who killed him in this case. But there's this. There's a reference to the Adama and clen- there's, a, there's a cleansing. There's an atonement that needs to take place in the land. Um, innocent blood has been shed and that blood will cry out for vengeance if Israel doesn't do something. I'm wondering if there's a connection back with Cain and Abel. If I, I wonder if you could plug into that, the fact that just as Cain was exiled, um, that will be the ultimate um, outcome of Israel's unatoned for 
um, blood, you know, exile from the land. Yeah, that's good. So if they don't, if they don't go through this ritual to to uh, cover the land or to atone for it, then they stand in danger of being expelled. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right, Jeff. I noticed those same details that you were uh, pointing out. This is the way that I thought about it. In the case in Genesis four, Yahweh is the apparently the only one who knows that uh, Abel has been killed, that his blood is shed because he hears the blood that's crying out for 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 vengeance. He deals with Cain directly, uh, but in this case, you have a kind of Cain Abel situation where Yahweh does not intervene. He doesn't give direct guidance, doesn't expose the criminal, the murderer, but instead leaves it to the limited knowledge and justice of Israel. There's a kind of divine withdrawal here that uh, I know you're familiar with this idea. Jeff, you've talked about it in various contexts. Uh, you know, I'm sure we learned it from Jim Jordan as we learned everything. But the, the idea that uh, God creates Adam, puts, puts him in the garden, and then it seems that God is absent during the temptation scene. You know, he's put in... Adam is put in this position where he has to face the serpent himself without God's direct intervention to prevent that. And it it seems to be part of a maturation theme throughout the Bible that uh, God places human beings in situations, withdraws as it were. He's still present, omnipresent, but he's not, not there to intervene and to correct things. Uh, and this seems to be a case where Israel is supposed to be growing up and learning to handle difficult, unsolved cases without the Lord intervening to to solve it for them. They're, they're supposed to be growing up as judges and kings themselves. I wonder if another point of contact we could think about, obviously Cain and Abel brothers, you know, innocent blood is, is shed by a, um, a, a nearest of kin. Um, the elders who are going to say our hands did not shed this um, blood, this innocent blood in, in verse 7, they are, it seems, the nearest of kin to the slain man. I'm not sure that's kind of clear in all translations, but I mean, it seems clear to me, all the elders of the city nearest to the slain man. It's not the city that's nearest to the slain man because nearest is in the plural. Um, so nearest very clearly goes with the elders. And, and I can only assume, therefore, that it's, nearest of kin so those those who were most closely related to the guy who has been slain have to um kind of act for him and and uh, proclaim their innocence ah oh, i thought you were i thought you were making more of an analogy with the city's refuge uh or the the nearest kin rather than a direct relation so how do you understand in that context how do you understand verse 2 where there seems to be measuring to the cities uh, uh, my nasb inserts measure the distance but um what do you what is going on there if you're talking about nearest of kin are you talking about identifying those elders who are closest relation to the to the dead man yeah so i i think it would be kind of first go to the city that's nearest and then within that city sort of get their elders of kind of his broader clan or, or whatever get those who are most closely related to him you know, that's that's different the way I'm reading it. That's very interesting. Uh, I had I had made the connection with the cities of refuge, but in a more general sense, that uh, cities of refuge or cities rather are prominent throughout this part of Deuteronomy. I haven't looked around at surrounding sections. Maybe it's just prominent throughout the book, but cities come up in obviously the cities of refuge, which begin the section, the sixth word section, 
cities are prominent in chapter 20 because cities are being besieged and cities are being destroyed. And then you get to this point and the city is, the elders of the city are the ones that are uh, that are taking care of this ritual. Uh, I was understanding it to be the elders of, the, of the, the city that is nearest and that the city has a certain responsibility for the care of the land that surrounds them. There's a, there's a uh, responsibility that the elders of the city have for the care of the land. But what you're saying would be the care of the land and the purification of the land is in the hands of those who are nearest kin, not necessarily those who are nearest in proximity. Well, I, I'm saying both. I'm, I'm saying initially it's it's the city that's nearest, but then there's a further zooming in within that city of the uh, elders uh, most, most closely related. But I mean, to some extent, it's a bit of a dichotomy, isn't it? Because you would think that in those days, there would be more of a carrier cross between geography and um whatever you want to call it, um, ancestry. Um, you know, people would dwell within clans and 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 so forth. And and there would be that connect that is kind of lost in the modern world. But I mean, obviously this idea of nearest of kin, we've seen elsewhere. So with the kinsman redeemer, with the if your brother becomes um poor, then it's kind of his next of kin who are meant to give him the loan um initially, same in Leviticus, etc. Yeah, that makes sense. So, okay, so that you're saying both that the city, the proximity of the city is significant, but then within the proximate city, most proximate city, those who are most closely related are the ones who actually carry out the ritual that's uh, that's involved. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, unless there's a problem with that, but I mean, that's my best no, sense. Yeah, and, and and that's based on the the uh, the grammar of verse six. The nearest, yeah. the nearest is the uh, is modifying elders rather than city. Yeah, I mean that was my instant. I, I could be wrong about that, but that was my sort of instinct, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's really that also that also fits just with the role of the yeah. kinsman. And the, I mean, one thing is kind of unexpected here. You'd expect maybe the law to say, then the nearest kin would seek out diligently who did this, do do an investigation. That's probably presupposed here, but. You'd expect the nearest of kin to be the ones who are looking for justice. And in this case, they're the ones who oversee this atonement process. And assuming that an investigation has already been made and there's there's no one that can be found who struck him down. Many people have seen this passage as alluded to in Matthew chapter 27, in the scene with Pilate, where he washes his hands in front of the crowd saying that he is innocent of um, the blood of Jesus this is their responsibility. Do you think that that fits with this particular reading of the text? Should we see this as a background to Matthew 27? Well, I think you at least have the very general connection of washing hands as a release from guilt or release from responsibility. I've tried to tried to sort through that more particularly, and I haven't done it very successfully in thinking about how Pilate is, might be somehow reenacting this. I haven't been able to put the pieces together. I mean, it's, it's one possible sort of piece in the puzzle. This whole um, idea of of the um, uh, the men, the man hung on the tree, coming immediately afterwards. If a man has a um, stubborn and rebellious son, you know, who, who's accused of being a, a glutton and a drunkard. I mean, we we said that ultimately, you know, this is the accusation made against um, Israel by God in in all sorts of places, Isaiah 1, etc. Israel is, is God's rebellious son. But, I mean, Jesus, of course, is accused of that um, 
very very thing being a glutton and uh, a drunkard by the one who was the rebellious son i you know i by a fallen uh, jerusalem and, and i wonder if there's something um to that then jesus is is very literally dying the death that his accusers um deserve to die in that they are the rebellious ones and and so i wonder if that putting that alongside the whole idea of washing hands etc and innocent blood has some um some merit to it yeah that's that's really good so that jesus jesus dies charged with the very crime that uh, his accusers were guilty of there's a very direct kind of substitution one might even go so far as to call it a penal substitution because he's being charged with a crime a capital crime uh, by the very people who should are deserved to be uh, punished for that crime. When I think about the cities, uh, a, a couple more things. Uh, thinking about the cities, it occurred to me that there's a if you if you take verse two to mean you're looking for the most proximate city, that does imply the city has some responsibility. The elders, particularly of the city, have some responsibility not just for the the life within the city itself, but for the land that is surrounding it. That their their juris, jurisdiction, if you want to use that term, extends the responsibility extends to the proximate land. There's a kind of localism, subsidiarity at work there, if you want to think about it in legal terms or uh, political terms. But it also, I also wondered if there was something like a uh, a priestly kind of thing going on there, where the elders of the city that is closest uh, have to bear responsibility for a crime in their territory. They're not the ones who committed it, and they declare that before the Lord. And yet they have to go through this right, and they have to they have to uh, de- declare this publicly before the Lord and before the city that they neither did it nor know who did it. And it seems like they're 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 playing kind of a, a sin bearing role in the way that the priest carries the kind of sin bearing role among the people, and in the way that Israel, as a priestly people, bears a sin bearing role among the nations. So the city. Uh, we we know we have Levitical cities that have a priestly character more specifically, but it seems almost that it's implied that the cities are not just governmentally responsible for the surrounding territory, but somehow the uh, uncleanness or the wrongs or the defilements of the surrounding territory are imputed to them, and they need to they need to they need to remove it. Yeah, and we would expect that that would be the role of the priests, but here it's the elders of the city that do the killing, the breaking of the neck, and then also do the the washing of their hands. The priests are there in verse 5, but we're not really told what they do. It just seems like they're observing, and they apparently have some say in things because it ends with, uh, by their word, every dispute, every assault shall be settled. But it seems like the it's almost like the elders have the priestly role here of making atonement. And the priests are assisting. The other thing I'd say about that, I think verse five is is a remarkably full kind of summary of what the priests do in Israel, and not just in the tabernacle and in the sacrificial system, but in political matters. Uh, the priests, the sons of Levi, they come forward uh, for Yahweh your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of Yahweh. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. So that 
you have here what I think is often assumed in other places, that is when there's a judicial commission uh, with elders and priests, there's this, the priests seem to have some kind of penultimate, you know, say in what happens here. Uh, and the elders and the priests together make these kinds of determinations. But the priests really just seem to be observing and confirming what the elders are doing in this case. How are we to understand this as a sort of um, ritual connected with atonement? It talks about atonement in verse 8, but there's no action on the part of the people who are offering this that requires straightforward atonement. Indeed, they're um, disavowing res responsibility for the um, dead body. There seems to be something of a vow character to this. There's They're testifying and there's a ritual associated with that. Is the ritual itself um, something that provides atonement, or is the atonement more the fact that they're providing an account of the death and their innocence of the, the guilt? I'll state my view that, that I think it is an atoning act. Uh, it's a death, a washing, a prayer for covering, and then the Lord does atone. So I think it it's an atoning ritual, but yeah, it's it's unusual in all the ways that you describe. Unusual, particularly in the way the priests fail to act. I'm going to get back to Jeff's comment about the priests. Um, uh, and then we, we do need to talk about the atonement question that Alistair raises, but the, the it almost seems like the reference to the priests is a kind of faint, a fake. The priests show up and you expect them to do something, oversee or act out the ritual. Or you expect them to solve the problem, because uh, you go back to chapter 17, uh, verses 8 and 9, if any case is too difficult for you to decide be one, between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of lawsuit and another, between one kind of assault and another, being cases of dispute in your courts, then you shall arise and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses, and you shall come to the Levitical priest or the judge who's in office in those days. You shall inquire of them, and they will declare to you the verdict in that case. It sounds like that's a consultation with Yahweh. They're inquiring them perhaps with the Urim and Thummim and solving the case. And in this case, the priests show up, kind of interrupt, verse 5 kind of structurally interrupts a sequence of verses that talk about what the elders are doing. And the priests show up and don't do what you expect them to do, which is expose expose the murderer. And they don't even, they don't even, I think they're blessing, they're, they're observing, they're blessing. Uh, perhaps they have some maybe they have some role in deciding that there is there is no there's no way to solve the case but uh, they don't do what you expect them to do and it, it i guess that this uh this seemed to me to be another indication of the kind of divine withdrawal withdrawal that i mentioned in about uh, the can and able typology that um the priests are there but there are some cases that the lord is not going to give the priest information in order to solve in order to resolve uh, and Israel has to govern in a human way and learn to govern in a human way. Is part of the idea that the priests are meant to be distanced from uh, the blood and the bloodshed in, in some way? I mean, I think it was last week, Alistair mentioned how throughout this these three chapters, really, there is this idea that the shedding of blood has a um, has an effect and, and a, a stain that can't be entirely 
removed we, we thought about how david wasn't to be the man to build the temple because his hands had shed so much blood and is the idea here that the priests as kind of nearer to god um if, if you like are, are to be there but not to be in in sort of contact with the blood in some way yeah but priests are always in contact with the blood of their sacrifices maybe maybe the the point here is that if if you're right james then this killing of the of the heifer is like the symbolic death of the man and so they're not going to be involved in in that kind of bloodshed whereas the elders are i do wonder whether we should see their involvement here far more as representing the fact that this ritual is performed in the presence of the lord and the priests are his representatives as his household servants and so they're there in that official capacity as um witnesses yeah that, ma that makes a lot of sense that they're they kind of bear the presence of god with them and so they're they're uh, observing uh is not strong enough uh they represent the presence of god just coming back to this whole issue of fault um I don't know if I misunderstood your initial question, Alistair, but aren't most, I mean, perhaps even all issues of atonement kind of connected to things where we don't um, ascribe fault or blame? So obviously, I mean, objects can be um, atoned like the uh, altar or, or so on, or, or like with the burnt offering in Leviticus 1 that isn't triggered by a sin. The person who offers, offers it um, is said to make atonement with it or, or a woman after giving birth she she needs to be atoned you know so on sort of isn't the idea of guilt kind of very often um uh disconnected from atonement or, or, or have i not grasped the um question in the first place i mean there are certainly cases where purification or atonement does not require does not imply guilt in the party there is still some sort of pollution of blood that needs to be dealt with. My question is more about whether the specific form of, if we're going to call it atonement involved here, um, where there's a disavowal of um, a connection with the spilling of the blood, whether this is a more distinctive, unique case, because the other cases, there may not be fault or responsibility but that blood, nevertheless, is something that the person bears and needs to be dealt with. In this case, um, I wonder whether we're dealing with something beyond that, atonement through the vindication of the party, through declaration in the presence of the Lord that they are not, in fact, guilty of the blood. Um, it's not that they have inadvertently sinned or that they become impure through some um benign activity that has nonetheless um rendered them unclean this seems to be something more than that yeah that's where i think uh it it does seem like they're playing a kind of priestly role and by that i mean not just overseeing this ritual but a kind of sin bearing role so um they don't yeah they don't have any personal responsibility they're not personally stained by it at all they're not personally guilty and yet they're the ones that take responsibility for it because the elders of the city as representatives of the city, this is my theory, as representatives of the city are playing this kind of priestly role within the land 
in the way that the high priest in particular is a sin bearer within within Israel. Uh, let me let me back up for a second, and uh, for the sake of our audience, we've been talking about the ritual that's done. And uh, let me summarize the ritual, uh, which will raise a, a host of other questions. <laughs> um, uh, so, what happens when you when you have a corpse that's on the ground uh, out on the land? The cities, the the elders of the city nearest, and then if James's theory is right, those elders that are nearest kin to the to the to the dead person uh, take a heifer, uh, a female bovine, a cow. The cow has to be one that has never worked, has never have been yoked. Take that cow not to the sanctuary, but down to a river. It's translated as valley, but the the, the word suggests river, but it's a, it includes the river valley because it's an area that's not been plowed or sown. So break the, break the heifer's neck. There's not a, a slaughter that, that, uh, re- that releases blood, but uh, maybe some bloodshed, but it's not the kind of slaughter you do at the, uh, the sanctuary. You break the heifer's neck, then the elders of the city uh, wash their hands over the dead body of the heifer. And they pray this prayer that their hands have not shed the blood. They haven't seen it. Uh, they haven't witnessed it. They're not uh, personally guilty of this, uh, and they ask the Lord to cover or to atone. Uh, it's uh, kafar in verse eight, both at the beginning and end of verse eight. It's kafar, which is the word for atone. Yom Kippur. Kippur is the same root, uh, and then it says the the innocent blood is removed. So it's that that's the ritual that we're talking about, just to get the get the details of the rite out there uh, before we plunge in and try to figure out what it all means. Well, before we get into all, what it all means, I guess this is part of it. How in the world do you break the neck of a heifer, of a cow? You know, I forgot all about doing this. I was going to ask a friend of mine who's an ag guy and who works with uh, cattle. Um, usually when you when you slaughter a cow, it's either with a certain, uh, you know, there's a me- mechanical instrument where you brain them, basically. Or, of course, in a sacrificial system, you use a sword. Um, but it can't be easy to break the neck of a cow. Uh, uh, that's uh, that's all I'll say. <laughs> yeah, I had the same thought. I don't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't find any answers. I, I'm. I imagine that they they don't have stunning stunning uh, machines like like we have now. But something that would immobilize the cow before you break its neck. I would assume. Because you'd have the, you have something of the same problem in the tabernacle. Because you can't. Let's assume that the sacrificial animals are going to be resist having their throats cut. So uh, you think that there's some kind of uh, stun or some kind of maybe a, maybe I don't know medication that's given to animals to calm them so that they can be slaughtered in the, even in the even in the sanctuary. But yeah, even even after you stunned it, it must take quite a bit of force to uh, break the neck. Does anybody know how that's how that was done in the ancient world? Are there any other references to cattle's necks being broken in the scriptures? Or I don't know that there is. Yeah, not cattle, but um, the one example, uh, the one parallel in that regard is uh, if you have a firstborn unclean animal that can't be devoted to the sanctuary, you also can't use that unclean animal like a donkey. Donkey is the example that's given. You can't use that unclean animal in order to work if it's if it's a firstborn animal. And so you have to break its neck. So there's a uh, there's that's the only one I know of. I wonder whether another example would be abstaining from things strangled in Acts 15, 
the strangulation, presumably breaking the neck and being designed to preserve the blood within the creature. Isn't that part of... Well, Peter, were you talking about the um, bit probably in Exodus 13, like just between the Passover um, events, if if you like? Um, uh, is that what you're... You were talking about where you yes. um, either redeem it or or break its neck, right? Did you have something more that you wanted to? No, I, I was just that we were. I mean, it, 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 this is not a very informed observation, but it would strike me as quite difficult to break a donkey's neck as well. Uh, but I suppose it's younger, <laughs> so it's it's. I mean, how how old is this heifer? I guess is is one question. Well, the the word is the feminine form of egel, which is calf. Uh, and the 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 one huge parallel is in Numbers nineteen. We'll 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 get to that in a second because that's the that's one of the other places where heifer is required for a ritual. Uh, but there it's para, which is a a, a feminine feminine of bull. This is egla, which is feminine of calf, which I, I think means that it's a young cow. Well, back to Alistair's comment: breaking if the breaking in the neck is is to avoid shedding blood then and there may be some significance the fact that this heifer's neck is broken but no blood is poured out on the ground and since this is about blood shed on the ground uh by the murderer uh there's a there's a heifer that is killed but no blood is spilled and then that ends up being atoning that ends up atoning for the innocent blood that has been shed in the midst of the people. I think that's right. That it's a, a form of death that doesn't that doesn't uh, shed more blood on the land. But that feels weird to me. Uh, maybe it shouldn't. But yeah, I guess I guess it shouldn't feel weird. I guess, maybe it's maybe it's the analogy would be a murderer sheds blood on the land. What atones is not his blood, and he's not. He's not killed. He's not beheaded. He's not. He's not. He's not. Uh, he doesn't have his neck, uh, his throat cut, but he's stoned, which would mean some bloodshed. But it's not a bloodletting form of punishment. So it does seem. I guess it's somewhat analogous that uh, it's in both cases you have a form of a form of killing that's not that's not going to maximize the amount of blood. And it's the death. It's the death of the murderer and not his blood that atones the whole ritual is weird peter <laughs> yeah so figure it out jeff tell me what it means why, why a heifer start with why a heifer there <laughs> seems to be one heifer sacrifice in first samuel 16 where um, samuel is instructed by the lord to take a heifer and make a sacrifice and that will be the means by which he'll escape the um questions of Saul, but also the context within which you will meet the son of Jesse to be anointed. Yeah, heifers are heifers are fair game for peace offerings. You can have a male or female for a peace offering. Uh, so presumably there are a lot of heifers offered, but it's not it's not mentioned very much. And they're only, so far as I found, there are only two places where heifers are prescribed. And that's here in Deuteronomy 21 and in Numbers 19, where the, the red heifer is slaughtered and burned and then it's ashes there's some other things that are added to the to the uh, burning heifer and then its ashes are mixed with water in order to make the uh, the water of uh, purification that cleanses from corpse defilement 
So I think there's there's definitely a connection between those two uh, rites because in both cases you're removing a stain of death. You're using a heifer that dies in unusual in an unusual way in order to do it. I wonder whether there's another example of a heifer sacrifice in the Return of the Ark from Philistia. Right. Yeah, you're right. Those are those are cows that are that that pull the ark, the cart back from Philistia. So then the other question is why is this heifer why does this heifer have to be one has not labored? No yoke has ever been hooked up to this heifer. What's the significance of that? Everything seems to be virgin, as it were. The ground hasn't been worked upon. The valley is one that is in its natural state. And the heifer as well is not one that's been used. There's more generally uh, demand for things that have not been put under human control. They're in their initial natural state. Can I ask a question? Go on, is Brian, it, I'm intrigued. <laughs> I'm just, uh, is it possible that this heifer is not killed at all? That it's a reference to breaking it in or taking an untamed animal and taming it, that there's not a death of the heifer at all. Is that even, I'm curious if it's definitely the case that this heifer is killed here by the breaking of the neck, or does it mean that it's taken, an unyoked heifer is taken outside to a different place and it's now broken in as it were, going from stiff necked to now being under man's control it just yeah agreed it's a very odd passage i'm just yeah, trying to think of anything else yeah I, I think that i mean that would put it in kind of the realm of day of atonement where you have an animal released that is bearing the right the stain of the, all the sins and uncleannesses of israel are placed on the scapegoat and, and removed the the verb uh james helped me uh the verb for breaking neck doesn't actually include the word neck, but I don't I don't know what it means. I forget now what it means in general. Oh no, it, it is from neck. I mean, it, it's kind of I guess literally just to neck ah. to neck the heifer sort of thing. Okay, um, yeah. I mean, th- is it this is might it necessarily be very... one that is a breaking of the neck, or does it mean behead? I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I know it can be to break down in some um, contexts where it's not explicitly connected to a neck. Um, I think there's one place where you break a, I don't know, a pillar or or, or a temple or, or or something like that. I mean, th- th- this is quite a um, uh, possibly a far-fetched idea. Um, see see what you make of this, but I mean, it reminds me very much of the whole um, leprosy ritual in Leviticus 14, where there are two. Um, birds and one is killed over running water, which obviously kind of um, resonates right. with this heifer being killed over um, running water. And I, I've I've wondered, I've toyed with the idea that heifers quite often depict um, Israel. You know, Israel often in a negative state. You know, Israel is like a, a backslidden, you know, a wayward um, heifer, and so on. And, and I wonder if the idea is is the relevant parties kind of put themselves in the valley of guilt, if you like, the valley of, of decision. They all go there and Israel is symbolized by um a, a heifer. And so one Israel kind of dies, if you like, in the valley and doesn't come back out. But then the just as the live bird is released, you know, the elders and the priests do come back um out, out of the valley. And if that's part of the um symbolism of it all. 
there are certainly connections between that ritual in Leviticus and the ritual of the red heifer in um, Numbers 19 with the other elements that are involved. For instance, the cedar, the scarlet yarn, and the hyssop. Yeah, another bit of evidence for a connection is the fact, uh, verse 5, I think, yeah, the priest, talking about the priest, they resolve every dispute, uh, which is reeve, and every assault. I uh, can't remember the Hebrew, but that's stroke. And that is the word they use for leprosy. It means plague in some places, but it's most most used in Leviticus 13 and 14. So the, the dead body is a kind of stain on the skin of the land. It's a kind of a disease on the skin of the land. The land has also drunk down blood into its innards so the land is becoming sick and so this is a healing ritual in part but that would that would bring the whole uh cleansing of the leper up and uh that that terminology of uh of the stroke would bring that up yeah and the 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 specific thing well a couple a couple more things on the on the feminine animal the female animal yeah i think israel is a heifer uh within the context i wonder if it's the city that's being represented cities are feminine and so you have a female animal that's going to bear the atonement on the behalf of a uh, bear bear a death on behalf of the city. It's represented by the elders and the and the this again. I'm I'm so operating with my idea that the city is kind of a sin bearing institution within the land. If that doesn't work, then this would be this this idea would be weaker. So you have that uh, the female animal represents the city in particular, uh, and uh, the other thing that uh, just to support your contention, uh, James. The best thing I've read on Numbers 19 is a Durham PhD dissertation by Joel Human, H-U-M-A-N-N, very detailed study of Numbers 19 and the red heifer ritual. And he takes the the heifer to be Israel. Uh, through contextual and linguistic evidence, he suggests the, the heifer is Israel being reduced to dust. It's being reduced down to nothing as Israel is in the wilderness. This is the last piece of legislation in the book of Numbers, and it's representing Israel being reduced to uh, dust in the wilderness. And then that dust of Israel becomes a means for cleansing from death. So there's a resurrection, death and resurrection kind of motif that's going on. But yeah, he he suggests that the heifer, it's, the heifer is chosen because it represents uh, the bride or the heifer of Yahweh the bull, as it were. One of the things that strikes me about this passage as a whole, and about quite a lot of the context is that there is very strongly this idea of kind of collective um, guilt or, or, or corporal guilt or, or, you know, something along those lines. And, um, you know, we've, we've seen that in the previous um, uh, chapter, a whole city um, being effectively guilty um, before God here, there is an unsolved murder and if not atoned for, I mean, that's not, Israel's fault, um, if, if you like, or at least not Israel at large. It's, it's not their fault, but guilt will come upon them. You know, they will um, uh, suffer as a result of what's happened. And um, as I say, that's in Deuteronomy elsewhere. If a false prophet kind of seduces a city, that whole city is is going to be um, uh, uh, put to death, basically. And um, it just then sort of strikes me that that's an important thing to bear in mind in this particular section of, of the text i mean firstly because obviously we're talking about going to war against foreign cities um in the immediate um context but 
the the Lord is even handed in the way that he deals with these kinds of things. So if there's a city, some of whose members have fallen into idolatry in chapter 13, that that whole city um, has to be destroyed, basically. And, and so kind of the way the Lord purges sin from Israel is kind of consistent with the way the Lord tells Israel to deal with outsiders. Um, but then, I guess, secondly, it, it I'm not saying it, it kind of flattens out the passage entirely, but there are jarring details in the second half of this chapter, you know, the way that this whole city is going to be um, uh, wiped out, but the women can be spared um, if, if Israel choose to do so. And if we think that that city, basically everyone there deserves to um, live and to go free, then the idea that these women can be taken captive um, is an odd one. But I mean, if, if we think that the whole city is, is guilty and, and deserves death, then these women being spared takes on like a very different significance. And um, as I say, I, I just think that notion of collective um, guilt is, is then therefore exegetically an important one. Uh, I think that's pretty clear here. That's a great point, James. I mean, you, I mean, you, you move the culpability, you move from a single murderer who's, who, uh, who murdered someone. And then you move to the, the city and the elders of that city. And then at the end, it's Israel. It's accept atonement in verse eight. Oh Lord, oh Yahweh, for your people Israel. So that you have this move from an individual to a city, to the whole people, the whole land uh, uh, theme here also kicks in is when, when even when innocent blood is shed on, on the land uh, near a city, in the field, in the open, the whole land then becomes defiled and all the people have some sort of culpability in it. Part of the ritual is uh, this speech that the elders make uh, once they've necked, broken the neck. However, we're, we're understanding that uh, the, of the heifer, they wash their hands. That suggests to me that there's something that they're washing off. Uh, that doesn't seem like a, a fitting rite if their hands are clean already. So somehow they have... Uh, they have uh, uncleanness or blood to wash off. They haven't shed blood themselves, but they're bearing the blood in some way. Uh, and then they make this declaration, our hands have not shed the blood, nor did our eyes see it. If their eyes had seen it, if they had witnesses, or if they knew who did it, they don't have the option of doing this. So they don't have the option of taking the easy route of not prosecuting a human being and executing a human being. And saying, "Well, we're going to kill a heifer instead." They have to declare that they they don't they're ignorant of the of the murderer, and then a prayer that uh, asks for atonement based on the Lord's redemption of Israel from Egypt. Atone, cover your people whom you've redeemed. Uh, don't place the guilt of innocent blood in our innards, in our midst, uh, and then the declaration that they will be forgiven. So that there's a ritual that includes the killing of an animal. There's a ritual that includes washing, but the prayer is also part of it. They're addressing God directly, and it's in response to that whole package of things that the atonement is made. This is where um, Alistair's point about the priest's presence, I think, comes into play, one of the places. So making a declaration that they're innocent, they're not just doing that just anywhere. The place that they've chosen is said to be there. There's The word sh sham is used in here. I can't remember which verse it's in. 
I've pointed this out before. I'm, I've been attentive to the places where the word there is used because Deuteronomy 12 is so prominent. The Lord is going to choose a place there uh, where his name is going to dwell. He's going to set his name there. That's a that's a triple pun in the Hebrew. So any place that's a there is a quasi-sanctuary. So they have a place there. The priests are there uh, at this place. And that means that they're declaration of innocence is done in the presence of God, in the presence of God's representatives, as if they are witnesses that are going into the sanctuary, which is required in other instant, in other cases. Here, the sanctuary kind of goes out into the land, uh, and they declare this innocence before the, before the uh, priests who are uh, present. I wonder whether, I'm not sure about um, how we're supposed to interpret, for instance, the act of Pilate um, when he washes his hand, his hands, is he saying that um, the blood of Christ is on his hands, but he's washing it off? Or is it a declarative act that his hands are clean and do not have that blood, never had that blood upon them? I'm wondering also yeah. about whether we have other examples of expiation or um, addressing guilt through the application of water rather than blood. Yeah, usually water's uh, for purification from impurities, but this is a kind of uh, this is kind of a land impurity. I take your point. That's a good point about Pilate. Uh, Pilate, I don't. I think you're right that Pilate is not saying I've got I've got uh, my hands are unclean, my hands are bloody. I need to wash them because I have actually shed innocent blood. It's a declaration that he's not guilty at all. But I guess the the thing that pushes me in the other direction here is the end of verse eight. They ask for covering and their blood guilt will be covered, which seems to mean that there is some if they if they aren't if they don't do this, then there will be some imputation of guilt to them. So they they need to do this right where the heifer takes the takes the death that they deserve and they need to they need to declare their innocence for the blood guiltiness to be atoned for. I suppose my question is more whether they have that um, blood guilt upon them and it needs to be removed or whether they need to have this ritual of disavowal or else a blood guilt that has not yet attached to them would be attached to them. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's a more uh, refined question. I'm not sure I got a good, a good answer to that. Yeah. I, I, I do see what you mean. I, I mean, I guess if you go back to the pilot, question it's certainly true if you think of the context and the flow of let's say matthew that the the leaders it's just been said at the end of matthew 23 by jesus that they have um innocent blood on on their hands and so i guess as one of israel's leaders if you like an unusual type of leader because i guess he's a, a a gentile but at least kind of in the flow of the um narrative there is innocent blood um on pilot's hands and so kind of exactly what he means is, um when he, he sort of washes his hands is is one thing but in the narrative it, it certainly seems like an unsuccessful um uh, attempt to wash his hands of blood another detail um so they wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken um I'm picturing a typical water hand washing scene where someone has a bowl. Maybe the priests have a bowl of water from the flowing stream. Uh, 
and are pouring it over the hands of the elders. And the water then is also then baptizing, if you will, the heifer, cleansing the heifer as well. Um, so you have water coming down on the hands and then over the heifer. I'm not sure there's, you know, some deep significance of that, but they are doing the hand washing over the heifer. I want to go back to Alistair's point about Pilate. I, one, one argument in favor of seeing this ritual as more a prevention than a, than a resolution of something that's already been charged, the link with the end of the chapter so a, a a corpse that's hanging on a tree might cause defilement if you leave it hanging on the tree through the night. So you take it down in order to prevent the defilement. So maybe that uh, that would that might argue for that's what that's what this rite is about. It's not a it's not that they're that's they're already been charged, but they're preventing the preventing that charge of blood guilt from being brought by performing this rite. And I think ultimately it's because verse nine says the guilt of innocent blood is removed. Uh, because they do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. So it's performing this ritual in obedience to God in his presence, represented by the priests. That's what it, that's what that's what brings the atonement. It's not magic, and it's also uh it's 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 an act of obedience, a prescribed ritual that God has given them. But if you act in obedience to that ritual, then God promises to to atone and forgive. Couple couple last things. Uh one is the verse nine. So you shall remove the guilt of innocent blood. That's ba'ar. It's unfortunately translated as remove here. Ba'ar is translated elsewhere as purge. Usually it's purgation by the death of a perpetrator. So, you know, if there's a, a murderer, you, you execute the murder and that purges innocent, that purges blood from the land. You uh, purges the, the guilt of the blood from the land. Uh, here it's done. Again, you got this kind of, uh, penal substitution idea that's operating in the whole ritual. You perform the same result as a as a capital punishment, but you do it when you in the absence of anybody to execute. You don't have anybody to execute, so you execute the the heifer. You perform this ritual, and that has the same effect as finding finding the perpetrator, finding the murderer, and executing the murderer. It purges the guilt from the land as much as that previous one, uh, as much as much as an execution would. Uh, the last thing um, I want to point out this is a this is from uh, Christopher Wright's commentary. He has a, a really kind of moving and convicting passage about uh, the, I mean, a, a basic point about this uh, this ritual. You have a dead body that's found. Uh, I think Jeff is right. He said this at the beginning. There's no way to there has been an there has been an investigation that's been inconclusive. They haven't been able to find the murderer, but they don't have the option of doing nothing. They can't just seal it up as a cold case and say, "Oh, well, sorry, we couldn't find the murder. We we just uh, we'll just file this. Maybe maybe in thirty years there'll be an enterprising detective who will figure it out." Um, they have to do something. A single a single death of a single person requires this kind of response from a whole city. Okay, you get more cities than just one because you got cities and judges who are measuring to different cities. One body on the land. Uh, requires this kind of response and this kind of public ritual in order to atone for it. And Wright's point is that we become so numbed to death. Uh, took a quick look at the internet to find out how many how many uh, unsolved murders there are in my state. This was an article, and I don't know what the accuracy, but the article from several years ago, uh, and I don't know the accuracy, but uh, 
they had estimated something like 7,000 unsolved murders, cold cases in Alabama alone. Those are 7,000 bodies that have been left with nothing and nothing's been done. Uh, and it makes me wonder if, if, if we make new covenant applications of this, should we as churches be calling on the Lord to forgive and to cover and be merciful in the light of not just of uh, all the, you know, we think of, we think of uh, abortion. We pray for that when we think about abortion, but we have murders in the United States that are, uh, that are done, never solved. Should churches be having prayers, uh, calling on God to forgive for those, the dead bodies that have defiled the land and that have, you know, that have filled the land that we haven't been able to uh, solve or atone for. And then I guess also you could say, if they're not, if it's not purged by the execution of the murderer, so there's a death, there's a murder, and yet the murderer gets off, uh, doesn't doesn't die for, uh, is that in the same category? I, I think uh, you can might might have to loosen that up by because uh, Israel's land is in a particular unique position, and it's uniquely holy. But I think there's there's an application there, and I think the the fundamental thing that Wright points out is just how numbed we are to death and how sensitive Israel is has is supposed to be to every death uh, that's done in the land. They have to do something. You can, there's never the option of doing nothing. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.